Well, hey, everybody, it's Kevin Stevenson, and you're on I Don't Care with me. Yeah, Kevin Stevenson, of course. I got a really interesting guest today, Dr. Steve Needleman. You know, Steve's got a really, really interesting story. He, he's done a lot of things in his life, uh, very entrepreneurial. And so, Steve, welcome to I Don't Care. Thank you, Kevin. I'm thrilled to join. Hey, thanks. So we've already been talking about, yeah, I'm a little red-faced because my Baylor Bears put it on the Texas Longhorns this weekend. Unfortunately, where my seats are, I got full sun. And so uh, anyway, so Steve was kind of making fun of me beforehand. And we got to talking college football. So, so Steve, you got you you played a little college ball, didn't you? Yeah, I played at Utah State. The other okay. Aggies, not not your Texas Aggies. Yeah, I'll, I can root for your Aggies. <laughs> yep, yep. And uh, played there for four years and had a great time. Loved That's it. Merle perfect. Olson was uh, was kind of the, my progenitor up there. He, I was a defensive lineman for yeah Utah State Aggies, as was uh, Merlin. That's very cool. Very cool. One of the fearsome foursome. You're right. From That's awesome, from, absolutely from the Rams. You're exactly yeah. right. So, so Steve, tell us a little. Tell us a little bit about you. I mean, you've got a, a really cool story. So, let's just start from the beginning. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in a family that my grandfather. We all worked at a store. He was an eighth grade uh, student that dropped out and went and started some businesses. And so, everyone would work all the holidays at his at his little convenience stores. Um, that kind of led to a few of us doing some entrepreneurial things. My brother, David, who was the founder of JetBlue Airways. and Wait, we, what? What? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's David. incredible. In fact, we, we, uh, I worked with him with, a, for an airline called Southwest Airlines. Or, excuse me. After he sold Morris Air to Southwest Airlines. And so okay. I was a Southwest Airlines person for about a year. No kidding. We, yeah. We sold Morris to Southwest and then. He had a non-compete, waited about four or five years, and then he started JetBlue. That's great. Well, you got something in common with my wife. She's a flight attendant for Southwest. And well, so, what, I, I love to love people with the U. I know. You know, I know. Yeah. Had so back, back to you. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so after we sold the airline, I decided to go back to medical school. David stayed in the airline business, and I kind of went to med school and, and took with me a lot of those uh, customer service uh, learnings that I, I, I gained from working for, I think, you know, the best airline in the world. If you look at Southwest's long-term uh, success story of always being on time and least number of lost bags and, on, and, and then lowest customer complaints, they used to call it the triple crown. And so when I went, to, I went to medical school and I would do my rotations, I was like, why don't we treat our customers, the patients, with the same type of service that that they did in the airline industry and so I just kept thinking about it and I came across some learnings I some it was some research done by some different folks on university campuses uh, and it and it became known as consumer directed healthcare or market driven healthcare and the idea being that if you could take healthcare consumers and take them out of this typical environment they're in, kind of like an HMO where they're just being told what to do all the time, a health maintenance organization. Yeah. There was this very paternalistic, we're, we're smarter than you. We're going to tell you consumer what to do um, and with your health to more of an open opportunity where they could use the internet, they could study, they may have a little bit of upside if they made better choices, better financial choices. And so that became kind of the beginnings of what we now refer to as health equity. Mm -hmm. And we, we always say with health equity, we connect health and wealth. That's our, our mission because we think there's an opportunity to do that. So started health equity just as I was finishing my surgical residency. Um, right. 
I was in Tucson, Arizona um, after medical school and, and had a great time in Tucson and, and decided, you know what, I'm going to try and figure this out how I can do both. And so started the company and then I worked as a trauma surgeon for 12 years. So general surgeon, trauma surgeon, former airline person, but then uh, started health equity and, you know, we're up to almost 3,500 teammates, Just had a big announcement yesterday, brought on another big, wonderful group of teammates uh, from Minnesota, a company that we just uh, acquired. And so, you know, we, we think that they're, we're onto something here. That's incredible. So, so, uh, you know, looking at, at your bio, you know, you really came about this, you know, naturally whenever I, I see here, you know, you started med school, you had, you had some health issues and that's kind of what led to, and then you, your, your daughter had some health issues. So, you know, kind of, kind of bring all that into, into this too. Yeah. So when I was a little pre-med student, you know, we were, I was working at a scholarship, so I couldn't work. My wife was working part-time and we were just scraping dollars together. I had a bellyache and it was right before I was going to take my medical college admissions test. I'm sure I was a nervous wreck for that. Mm -hmm. And so I went to, I did what I was supposed to do. You know, I stayed in network. I went to the doctor and what was frustrating was, is that that moment when I got the bill from the doctor and he said that the claim had been denied, because I had a pre-existing condition, which this was back in 1992, 93, I guess it was. And mm -hmm. I was so frustrated that I said, this just, this it can't be right. And, and sure enough, it was right. Um, they denied the claim. My daughter was born about a few months later. And then she, at age six months, started having seizures. And um, we took her through the whole process. She ended up um, having brain surgery uh, and huge cost, you know, $50,000 bill that thankfully was paid for insurance uh, mm -hmm. by insurance. And I thought, well, you know what? I can maybe understand why insurance isn't for the small stuff, but you really do need insurance for the big stuff. So that's when the concept of, hey, why don't you help people save money in these accounts for the smaller stuff? Yeah. But then for the bigger stuff, make sure you have good insurance, just like you would for your home. So it's you know yeah. the same model we use for our home and in our cars, right? We don't... Sure insurance to replace our windshield wipers that would be ridiculous and expensive but we do have insurance if we crash the car or if the house burns mm -hmm. down or something like that yeah you know and and most most of my listeners are are healthcare type people but there may be some people on the on the the podcast that really aren't familiar with health savings accounts you want to talk a little bit about that yeah so back in 96 everyone knows about the HIPAA law the one that predicts our uh, healthcare information with your privacy and it provides supportability and things like that. In that law, they did a little pilot program called the medical savings account. About seven years later, um, they expanded that to, uh, and it became health savings accounts. And the unique thing about health savings accounts is, is it is your money. I mean, health equity is now managing, you know, getting close to $20 billion of others, people, other people's money though. That's a beautiful That's incredible. thing. Incredible. Yeah. And if and you know what, they take it with them to their next job, they take it with them into retirement. It's not owned by the company, it's their money. And, and that's what attracted us to this notion of medical savings accounts or health savings accounts is, is that we wanted people to say, this is my money. And if I can make good choices on how to grow it, invest it, protect it, you know, spend, spend it if you need it, mm -hmm. but if you don't need it, then you can save it. And so the HSA is unique among all um, tax advantage accounts that we have access to in that the money that you put into the health savings account, you don't pay taxes on. The money that, that then it grows, there's no tax uh, cost there. 
And then if you spend it on healthcare, dental, vision, anything throughout the course of your life, or if your spouse, after you pass, they spend it on their healthcare needs throughout the course of their life. Nobody ever pays taxes. Mm-hmm. And you know, if you both die and you've got money left over in your HSA, then you can pass it on to your depend- your descendants and things like that. So it still functions like a 401k, but it's got this magical benefit of never having to pay taxes. And so now there's about 30 million HSAs in the country. Um, health equity is managing six over 6 million health savings accounts. And uh, there's a lot of American families are being helped by these. That's incredible. Well, I, I noticed in your bio, you do a lot of, of lobbying as well. Talk about some of your, uh, obviously around HSAs, but but what are some of the other issues that, that you take to the to the, our legislators in Washington and try to uh, sway some opinions? Well, now we work with lobbyists. I personally don't lobby. I do <laughs> educating. Um, you know, I'm an old professor of surgery and I used to love teaching the residents. And so now I just teach the legislators, but it's a lot of stuff. I mean, a lot of people say, well, HSAs are bad because of that high deductible plan, right? Because you need to have an HSA qualified plan, which is generally a higher deductible. And so what I'll educate legislators on is, you know what? All deductibles are now higher. And so the HSA isn't the bad part. The HSA helps you cover the out-of-pocket costs with tax uh, advantage dollars and people can save for it. And so a lot of education like that. We also do work on things like, um, you know, FSAs and COBRA and things like that, because candidly, these are new things that people don't understand. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, even, even being in the industry as long as I have, yeah, there, there are so many nuances around HSAs and FSAs and everything like that, that that I kind of get lost in it. You know, our youngest daughter's looking for individual insurance right now. And she's asked me all these questions last night. And I'm like, you know, you might want to find somebody a lot smarter than dad to answer some of these questions. But uh, so, so Steve, where do you see, um, where do you see your industry going next? I mean, you know, you've got, you've got a really great, great thing going now, but what's next? You know, Kevin, I think the, the future of our industry is not only helping people understand how to use these accounts, because that's what we've been spending a lot of time on, because they're new, right? I mean, people aren't used to this concept that you put money into one of these accounts and it actually sticks around, right? Because everyone's used to these use it or lose it accounts. This is not use or lose it. So it's been very administrative. Um, and then we kind of went to the next level of learning. You know, if you're going to go back to the college scene, right, that's like the 101 classes is how do you use it? Now you go to 201, which is, well, how do you optimize it? Well, it's not just a health savings account, but you have dependent care accounts. You've got everything else going on. And you can, every dollar you put into one of these tax advantage accounts is, is, is less money you pay in taxes. You take the tax savings, put it into an investment account or retirement account or the health savings account, which is we think the best retirement account. Then you can start to grow that balance. But where I think the future is, is okay. You've, you've helped them establish the account. You've helped folks now understand how to contribute. You've helped people understand how to invest it. We think the future is now help them spend it better. Uh, is there better choices, right? Because we all know uh, that in, in the United States, I mean, most healthcare is pretty high quality. I'm not saying all, but if you can find high quality healthcare and it's a heck of a lot less money, whether it's telemedicine, right. you, you go across the street and get an outpatient MRI instead of an inpatient MRI and save $2,000. That is what I think is the next frontier 
is helping people better spend the money. And then if you say, we help people better save and spend their healthcare dollars, next thing you know, you got kind of a durable solution to keep American healthcare strong, which I think is kind of this fountain of innovation. Because if we end up losing American healthcare and, and we end up being in a, you know, a situation where a lot of other countries are, which is, hey, we, you know, we're gonna be government run and we're gonna have to ration care and things like that. I think you're gonna lose some of the innovation that we've, we've figured out here in the United States. Yeah, and, and I would agree with you on that. You know, uh, and I'll tell you, the, the other thing I wish you would solve would be some of our labor shortages in healthcare right now. I don't know if you guys are experiencing the same thing that we are here in Texas, but, uh, but you know, if there was some way uh, that we could figure that out, that would be great too. So, so, so tell me a little bit, um, you know, you're talking about how to better spin this. Uh, what about, you know, what are your thoughts on centers of excellence, you know, for specific diagnostic groups? You know, I'm a big believer in centers of excellence and here, here's why. I trained as a general surgeon and general was a big part of it. And when I had to take the surgical boards, it was this frightening experience where after doing 13 years of post high school education and research and, and training, I had to, it all came down to sitting in a hotel room um, or multiple rooms with people that had written the textbooks on surgery, right? And, and usually in each room, there was a local surgeon who was well into their career. And then one of the people that wrote the textbooks and, and they would start asking me questions. Mm-hmm. And it was an cr- incredibly frightening experience. You know, one room, it would be 22 year old guy gets stabbed in the chest. What are you gonna do for him, Dr. Neeleman? And the next room was, you know, 48 year old woman has a, a lump in her neck. What are you gonna do for her? And next person is, you know, 68 year old woman gets in a car crash and hits her head. What are you gonna do for her? And what I realized was, is that, you know, I would have to consume all of this knowledge to be able to spit it out in the boards. And I passed the boards. But you know what? When it really came to treating every one of those organ systems, I did not have that knowledge. I, and so the question is, is look, if you need to have X, Y, and Z done, do you want to have it done at a place that has high quality and does many, many, many of these procedures or, or treats patients like that over and over again? Or do you want to go to a place that maybe treats them once a year? And I'm telling you, you want to go to a center of excellence where they're getting that kind of volume because medicine is so dang complicated. And so one of the things that I think is also the future of healthcare is if you can marry what we refer to as consumer-directed healthcare with what, what we would also refer to as centers of excellence. Now you've got this amazing kind of three-way deal where you've got a payer that's saying to a provider, hey, I really want to, to contract with you because you really know what you're doing because you do this over and over again. And the provider has to keep getting better to remain the centers of excellence. And then they're also saying to the the consumer, and by the way, we want you to go to this provider because not only will it save us money, it'll save you money, and it'll be a better service for you because these folks really know what they're doing. And then the consumer can benefit from it. And so some of the things I've seen that's interesting is, is where a payer, whether it's the employer or a health plan will say, if you'll stay in network and go to this center of excellence, Maybe your deductible is a little bit lower, or maybe we'll put some money in your health savings account to help help offset your deductible or something like that. Yeah. So I think I think it's a it's a great kind of a marriage uh, made in heaven because you know going back to 
you know, the old Southwest Airlines thing that we talked about. I think Southwest Airlines is a center of excellence when it comes to air travel. Um, we talked about it earlier, you know, because they they over and over again try and get better and better and better on on-time performance. And they're not always perfect, but they're a great airline. And so consumers want to go there because it is a center of excellence when it comes to that. Yeah, very much so. I totally agree with you there. So, so you've talked about now, are, are you still teaching? Are you still, are you still, uh, Doing surgeries? What do you, I mean, my gosh, you're, when do you have time? Well, you know, I practiced for 12 years. And then, you know, when we started, Health Equity became a public company um, in 2014. And in early 2015, I just felt like the safest thing for me, my patients, my family, and everything was to take a step back and quit practicing. That being said, I'm, my best friends in the world are still my doctor buddies. Um, yeah. You know, and, you know, there were these women and men are so talented. They work so hard. So I do spend a lot of time with some of our hospital systems. And um, in fact, I, I just um, two weeks ago spoke to a bunch of doctors about some of these concepts around consumerism. They're trying to embrace consumerism, too. They've never, you know, historically doctors and nurses and hospitals never really had to go out and, and, and be attractive to right. customers. You know, they right. just kind of got what came to them. And so I, I try and talk about those types of things. Um, in another week, I'm doing a grand rounds presentation. Um, and again, I'm talking to a bunch of residents um, the, from, a, from a state program up in the upper Midwest. And one of my colleagues asked me, would you talk to them? Because they don't know anything about this consumer-directed healthcare stuff. They don't understand yeah. about consumer economics and things like that. So That's very good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's something that we try to do here at my hospital is, you know, we're, we're in a mid-sized uh, market of about, oh, 450,000 people in, a, in around uh, a 10-county area. And so we really focus on, you know, we want our consumers to, to be very well-educated. And, and we want them to, to have the, you know, we want them to have a local facility where they could get good quality care, where they don't have to travel. And so we, we really are intentional about our, our, how we go about that. So, That's and I great. think, yeah, you know, and, and I've been, uh, I, I got involved early on in the whole service excellence movement back years ago when I was in Nebraska. And, you know, it was funny, you were talking about, you know, how, how you take your Southwest learnings uh, into medicine. Well, we went down to the Disney Institute and, and spent time at, at Disney World, you know, a tough place to, to to learn about uh, customer service, but we did that and, and brought that back and brought a lot of the same concepts to the hospital there. And, and you know what, it worked. And so we, I've tried to replicate that at every other hospital that I've, that I've been a part of. And, and people, people appreciate that attention to detail to what their needs are and not us, you know, saying, Hey, this is the care you're going to get, you know, involving those people in their care. I mean, I think that cross-pollination is so important. One of my favorite books uh, is called The Checklist Manifesto by Atul Gawande. You probably read it. Yeah. And, and Gawande was charged, Dr. Gawande was charged, a uh, general surgeon like me, was charged to implement the pre-surgical checklist, right? And anyone that's going under the knife should be happy for the pre-surgical checklist. Right. There are all these avoidable errors. You know, people, you know, taking out the wrong kidney or operating on the wrong patient or giving someone certain medication they were allergic to and all of these things would show up on the checklist. And and he tried to do it himself in the book and it was too long and nobody followed it. 
So he went to the airline industry. He went up and hung out with the people at Boeing. And he said to him, hey, what do you do for a pre-surgical checklist or pre-flight checklist? And they did it. And they said, it's got to be short. It's got to be memorable. And everyone's got to do it. And one of the things I love the most about the book, if I recall, is, is that um, Gwani said that in the cockpit, you know, we always think of these two pilots that are flying together and the flight crew and they all know each other. Well, they really don't. When you think about a huge airline, they may have never flown with that That's right. before. So the first thing they need to do is introduce themselves. Hey, my name's Steve. How are you? Where are you from? And, and he's, that was one of uh, Gawande's uh, ideas in the, in the OR, was for the, the, the surgeon to introduce uh, him or herself to the anesthesiologist and to the circulating nurses and everything. And just, and by the way, it was a first name basis and it became, they could work then as a team together. And so I think that's a huge opportunity to cross pollinate among businesses. I mean, why reinvent the will if they've already figured out a way to save lives in other industries? Let's, let's or or to improve customer service. You mentioned Disney, Fast Pass, all that stuff. I mean, you know, it's crazy to think that we're still doing annoying things like every time a patient shows up at their doctor's office, we make them go through that check-in procedure. Oh yeah, ridiculous. Can you imagine every ride you go on at Disney that make you? give them your name. It, it's like back in the Disneyland days when I was growing up, we had E tickets and D tickets and A tickets and they got rid of those. Uh, you know, and we, we need to innovate in healthcare the same way. No, I would agree with you. Well, Steve, this has been great. I've really enjoyed talking to you. You've got an incredible story and wow, you, you, you've touched a lot of different industries too. And so that's really cool that you can bring that all, all together into, into health equity. That's very cool. So with that, uh, you know, uh, it's, it's another episode of I Don't Care with me, Kevin Stevenson. You can find it on Market Scale Radio or iTunes or Spotify. Uh, it'll usually drop on Fridays. And so just be looking for that. And I'll end this podcast like I end all of them. If you haven't subscribed to, Kevin, to I Don't Care with Kevin Stevenson by now, why not? With that, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thanks.